I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Välkomna till Ronnys rullar återigen och nu har vi finbesök här. På besök i Stockholm i ett oerhört vinterigt vackert snö i Stockholm har vi eh, filmdirektör Witt Stillman. So nice to see you again. It's been 25 years. Yes, it's, it's good to talk again. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad that I got the opportunity because we're sitting here Sunday night and I came from the camp. But whatever, I have a lot of questions. So let's start. My part is, you know, from your start of your career. So should, we should start, of course, yes. with Metropolitan. Great. And um, Which is the film which Nonstop is bringing out in March. They are. Fantastic. Um, it is a film that I understand. You, you, my first question, it was a couple of years since I saw it, but when I looked at some clips and the trailer, I wonder, what is your relation to your characters that you write? Uh, do you love them or do you feel a bit... Ambivalent towards them? No, um, I mean, I think we have to pretend to be critical of them at the start of the movie, but we hope that in the course of the movie, the audience will sort of come closer to the characters. And it was a curious writing experience because I started out with the outsider character, Tom Townsend, who was sort of obviously someone in an analogous position to my position then, who's going to be the identification character. But in the course of writing it, Um, I saw that he was not fully sympathetic in his role. And there were three other characters who emerged as identification characters. So their sort of identification in the movie is split between uh, four characters. Yeah. And your humor, because it's a lot of really, it's not, how would you say, I, I would call it kind of a dry humor, not I, so much black humor. In I hope it's dry. It's not black at all. <laughs> no. It's a, white, it's a white comedy, not a black comedy. So um, in the sense that, It's, it's, it's sort of a comedy of, about virtuousness in a certain way. So it's not taking the downside of things. It's trying to find the upside of things. Yeah. Now, 
are there your own experiences in life up to that point that it, how long did you have to marinate this uh, story? I think one of the problems some young filmmakers have is when you're writing a script, it's really useful to have the experiences 10, 15, 20 years before. And so many people, I think, doing their first film are like 25 or 27. And when they go back that long, they get to a story about a sad 12 or 13 year old boy, which is really box office poison. <laughs> and although few films have been done, yeah. I think Truffaut did a good film of that kind. Um, and, uh, so I started late. I really started late. I, I, I wanted to be a writer, director and all that, but I was doing other jobs, earning a living. And for me, going back in that time, it was sort of freshman year of, of university. And I had experiences similar to these characters. Would you like to say that are you a mix of all these people at all or, or are you, you just outside you, you, looking in? Or? You end up sort of being that way. You don't intend that. You think you're just with one character, but then you have to kind of get within the other characters to 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 write it with pleasure. Yeah. Now, you were fresh out of your first film. So what expectations did you have when it was ready? Well, it's curious because... Um, in the film uh, world, the way I had entered um, was as a sales agent for Spanish cinema. And the Spanish cinema was very informal. And I got to act in some Spanish films and help with the production of some low-budget films. So I learned a little bit of things that way. But really, my experience was what would happen after the film was finished. And I took it to someone who I'd been impressed with when I'd been selling films, and he you know, helped us do the business side of it. And I was very hopeful that the film would be like a huge success. And it was really nice sort of Cinderella story. What's the word for a Cinderella in Swedish? Cinderella i askungen. Yes. That's Cinderella. So we so. had a Cinderella film experience. And... Um, but still, I think no matter how successful your film turns out to be, you always had this dream that it'd be even crazily more successful. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking you were nominated for yes. an Oscar. Yes, that was very strange. Were, yeah. It was very strange because it was a bit embarrassing because I, <laughs> um, yes, I was very loud about detesting the Oscars and everything about okay. them. And so my tune changed for that one year uh, because I have to say that the luncheon they have for all the nominees is just incredibly fun, exciting thing. But even at the nominations luncheon, these people from Hollywood said, you have no chance, so don't worry about it. You have no chance. And um, because in those days they're sort of block voting for films based on the studio releasing them and everyone associated with that studio wrote for their films. And um, and uh, we were with a smaller distributor. Um, but um, it was a different time because it was before they were doing those really expensive campaigns for um, the Oscars. And the, our only campaign at that point was just a mimeographed letter that was sent to the writer's branch of Academy members. And for the screenplay Oscar, there are more chances because you get five for original screenplay and five for adapted screenplay. Okay. And so it's the area where it's more easy to get a nomination. So when you sat there, did you feel that 
maybe. Or I mean, the crazy thing is, I didn't really prepare anything to say because you know everyone assumed that we didn't have a prayer. But then, you know, it's quite exciting because um, who was in front of me? The most important agent, Mike Ovitz, was sitting next to Dustin Hoffman, and I got to sort of be around all these you know amazing people. And um, I think, what if I did win? I better think of something to say. So I sort of tortured myself during the ceremony, trying to think of something to say if I should win. And then I didn't have that. And I should have realized that I wasn't seated on the aisle. I think the guy who won was seated in the aisle. And someone said, should check the seating of people okay. who are nominated. Okay, I see. That's a trick. Too. Okay. Now, you were kind of a, a new kid in town then when you came with it. I was, uh, you know, a 37-year-old new kid in town. So yeah, but in this business. So, yes, yes. So, and after this, was it easier for you, the nomination and all the great reviews for your film? How easy, was it easy? How was it for you to continue? I had a funny um, experience um, when I went out for the nomination. Um i got a meeting with a legendary film producer called Ray Stark. And reading a biography of Raymond Chandler is really interesting to see that at one point Ray Stark was Raymond Chandler's agent. So Ray worked with Ray. And um, so he was a legendary big wheel Hollywood producer, probably with all the characteristics that one imagines in old style Hollywood producers. And I got to have this meeting with him and he said he couldn't get over sort of laughing at the idea that a film that only grossed three million dollars in the United States was considered a success. <laughs> <laughs> so I was put down right away. And um, I mean, I was already trying to think of our second film, Barcelona. Yeah. And so um, I think I got my only time I was attached to a Hollywood project. There's a film project called Addicted to Love, and it was ultimately made with Matthew Broderick and Meg Ryan and directed by Griffin Dunn. Mm -hmm. But briefly, I was attached to it. But the um, producer was kind of a depressive, and he'd call me up almost every day to say if I was still going to do the movie. And and after a while, I mean, it's very dangerous asking that because after a while you think, well, maybe, maybe no. And so I was trying to write the Barcelona script and I had been blocked in writing the script. Okay. And so I was thinking of doing this other film. But while I was having all these problems with Addicted to Love, I suddenly started writing well on my own project. So I decided I better do that. Okay. So <clears throat> you came into this kind of Hollywood circus then? Yes. How, how was that? Have you wrote, written any script about that? Your experiences in the... Well, the thing is, what I noticed is, is in career terms, um, I mean, I have very little contact with Hollywood, but um, in career terms, there's a standard thing where someone would make an independent film, a low-budget film that was did well, and then they'd get studio assignments and have a real full-scale film career. And so maybe if I'd done that film or something like it, I could have had a Hollywood career with commercial films. But because I went on and made another film like the first film, then the industry sees like it's like in navigation. If you just have one point, you don't know where the boat's going to go. But if you have two points in navigation, you draw a line between them and you say, oh, this is just going to go in that direction. So I think the industry decided that I was just going to go in that direction and then All, almost all the job opportunities stopped. This this guy's just doing his own films of this okay. kind. 
And so it's very hard to change that trajectory. So with this new film um, that came out two years ago, Love and Friendship, okay. and again did well, it was sort of a late, late in life Cinderella film. What's the Swedish word for Cinderella? Askungan is yes. the word for Cinderella. Okay, so, so fifth Ash, film. Uh, kid. <laughs> it's a very aged Cinderella. And um, so I suddenly got offered um, or considered for other things for that. But again, it hasn't panned out in any other work, really. But <clears throat> you did, I haven't seen that as I know, but you did one of the episodes of Homicide, though. Or how yes, was that? Yes. Um, okay, we have some people in the background, but we... <laughs> and... Um, Uh, yes, I got to do that. They were, um, shooting in the East Coast. They're shooting in Baltimore and they had a bit of a gimmick where they would take indie directors from New York, have them take a train down to Baltimore and do an episode. And I think it was a bit of a gimmick to get people in the director's guild because a lot of independent directors did not join the director's union and we had to join it to do that show. And then I went down to do that and I cast, I got Chris Eigerman. Um, into that film. Um, he's the actor who I worked with in all the th- first three films. Mm-hmm. And he'd sort of play the preppy, yuppie character who we have as sort of a funny character, but also one who's ultimately likable. And one of our things was we didn't want to sort of denigrate our own group in the sense that everyone else was denigrating this group in films. And we didn't want to do that. And so I cast him in this part. And then the producer connected to it um, who had not written the script came in and changed that part and the other male part into really negative characters and it made no sense it was complete to me it seemed nonsensical so I did something that a television director can never do which is I questioned the the script I questioned the rewrite and so I did that one episode which I really enjoyed doing But I didn't get offered any other TV shows because there's a little group of people doing these police shows in the East Coast. And I assumed that because I caused trouble about the script, um, I was not favored. I see. So, but I was good having that experience. Yeah. But is it so, uh, b- before we get into more of the Barcelona experience, uh, is it so that you have your, your control and final cut on your movies always? Yes, I mean... It was great. I mean, some things that seem really bad when you're doing them in retrospect turn out to be really good. So the really bad thing is that as a starting filmmaker with no credentials, I hadn't shot commercials, I hadn't shot wonderful shorts, I hadn't shot music videos, all the things people do to get recognized. Um, so I had to just do it on my own with our own resources of family and friends. But it meant that I did have Final Cut. And so once you have Final Cut and show that you're responsible with Final Cut, then, the, I mean, I was very lucky that the next company that came to me was a company called Castle Rock Entertainment. And I didn't take it very seriously. I thought they're just another Hollywood company. And I was going to do my own, my <clears> second <throat> film, Barcelona, independently, maybe with the same distributor as Metropolitan. And I finally um, was in Los Angeles and had um, a breakfast with them. And I think they were under the impression I was really hard to get to because I was, you know, living in Spain and not in Los Angeles for appointments. And so they had the false idea that I was inaccessible and important. Um, and um, I thought that I had a third project that'd be more commercial and bigger budget that I could talk to them about. 
but the fellow there just wanted to talk about what I wanted to do next and mm-hmm. said, why couldn't they work on that? I said, it was going to be low budget. It's going to be fine line distribution. And um, this is a company, Castle Rock, that was started by a comedy film director and a comedy film actor, a comedy actor, also, Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner it's yeah. Rob Reiner's company. Yeah. <clears throat> and it really was a magical time there. Uh, it was Great. So I met these people. I like them, but I was very wary of a Hollywood company. And they said, well, okay, talk to, um, William Goldman, a screenwriter yeah. who, um, we work with, you know, go, when you're in New York, talk to William Goldman. He'll tell you about us. And so I went up to see William Goldman, who's a legendary screenwriter. <clears throat> and he told me how great they were. And you, you know, you have to work with them. They're great. And they were, were absolutely great. Um, so to do Barcelona, they allowed us just to go over there and do it as an independent production. <clears throat> they only asked that we, um, have an accountant that they would hire and pay for that would come down from London and, um, and help us with the accounting. <clears throat> and I was very reluctant to have anyone, you know, come down like that. I thought they'd be a spy and all that stuff. And it turned out to be just a godsend to have this fellow because the rest of the production was totally crazy. (laughs) And we had this very sane, very calm English uh, accountant who's delighted to be on a small budget film with very normal people and no prima donnas and all that. And so he he really saved us. So uh, Castrock was a great, great people to work with. I did three films with them. So I did Barcelona, Last Days of Disco. And then they did the exceptional thing with Damsels in Distress, which is a low-budget film. They actually wrote the checks themselves with their own money. Okay. Which it never happens, apparently. It's, it's, it's a always, jungle and a business. It's always, no, but it's always other people's money. Okay. Yeah. So they get fees, but it's not their capital. Yeah. In this case, yeah. it was their capital. They made a lot of money on the Seinfeld TV show. Yeah. And um, fortunately, they, they're making... Big profits. Yeah. So shooting Barcelona was on your, should we say, new home turf, so to speak? It was where you stayed or lived? Or? Yes. Um, so I married into Barcelona in 1980, and I had a lot of those experiences. I hadn't lived there full time, but I'd always be there summers and holidays and for work. Um, I wanted to live there, but my wife had a job um, working for Spanish TV News in, in Manhattan. Uh-huh. And so, but we did move over to prepare the film, to write the script. So you were, in a way, in, at your home turf, or not? You, you, you returned to Barcelona, how was it? Well, I mean, it was home turf in the sense that I'd been married to it <clears throat> since March 1980. So the whole period of the film, I'd, I had lived through one way or another. Yeah. So here we come into your actors, because it seems like, without any other comparisons, but I'm thinking of Orson Welles ensembles and... You want to work with a lot of the actors that suits you and your scripts, or how do you look upon that? Well, I don't understand why all filmmakers don't essentially use the same actors whenever they can. I think in the past people did it more often. Um, in big cinema, in commercial cinema, I think everything becomes putting names with titles so that you get the financing internationally and things like that. But if you're more low budget, maybe there's more freedom to just work with the people you want to work with. But I think historically, a lot of filmmakers did use the same people all the time. So a lot of filmmakers I really admire, like John Ford or Preston Sturgis, had their sort of stock companies. It's a logical thing to do. Yeah. If you see people are really good um, in the kind of roles you write, you want to work with them again and again. Yeah. But is it 
should I say, you, you feel secure with that or do you, you don't want to challenge yourself to use? Well, um, you want to deliver the best that you can, but you've worked with them and you've seen that they deliver what you want. So you want to keep working with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, so Barcelona, and all same with this film. It's a dry humor, but with a lot of uh, kind of serious understatement and, and, or, or, or a statement about the society and people interaction. So is it always that you watch your <laughs> how it looks around you and you go home and write it? Or how do you do when you write your scripts? How did you do then? Well, I was very lucky um, when I did that um, because f- for me, I-, I find that after a few hours, you sort of get hepped up on coffee to get ideas. And after a few hours of writing, you might get a lot of ideas. Um, But then your ideas become very weak and very thin and you sort of keep writing and you write a lot of nonsense. And what I found in, in working in Barcelona, um, because the schedule is so crazy, um, in Spain, I was able to have sort of three writing sessions a day. So it was super early in the morning writing session, sort of normal part of day writing session and then a late, uh, post Barcelona lunch, which was very late, uh, writing session. So that was a, a good experience. And, um, But I will always find that the really good ideas you get is not when you're sitting in front of your laptop computer. It's when you're shaving, when you're going down the stairs on the way to work, um, when you're coming back from having, you know, swimming during the summer or something like that. It's then when suddenly a piece of material comes. There's a, uh, sadly, um, no longer with us, um, Filmmaker Anthony Minghella, who's also a scriptwriter, yeah. died much. He went into one of these London hospitals and freakishly, you know, died much too young. Um, he had a word about screenwriting, which is it's as if you're waiting by a drawer and suddenly the drawer opens and you're allowed to take one thing out and the drawer closes again. <laughs> And it's sort of like that with material. I mean, you you could write all kinds of stuff and force it and try to make a story out of something or other. But the real magic is when the drawer opens and there's something great in it and you can take it out. And so suddenly some material just drops on you. And often it comes in a whole sequence of material, a whole series of things. And that's what's really great. And then you can sort of, over the following days, work on that and try to reshape that and, and make that work within the concept of the story. But if you are on the beach with and you get a great idea, do you remember that? Or do you have to use your kind of... You well, um, in Barcelona, um, my wife remembered me sort of running back up the stairs to write down what I thought of going down the stairs. And uh, there are a lot of shaving jokes in Barcelona. And I think a lot of those came out of shaving sessions. <laughs> That's, and I think that I if mean, you, you seem to have a beard here. And if, when you're running a screenplay, you're going to have to start shaving. I have to start shaving again. Yeah. My ex-wife say I have to. The other one like it, but uh, it's okay. a real problem now with all these fascinating devices that we keep ourselves entertained all the time with these phones and things. Yeah. Like this one here. Before it was better when we were disconnected from these things. So we'd have, we'd walk without a phone with headphones in our ears. Yeah. And we'd have maybe better ideas. 
Okay, so you're not at all on Twitter or social media at all? I am on Twitter. I'm very active. I'm surprised you're not following me and retweeting I'm me. I'm going to start that but, right okay. now. I but promise. I'm sort of um, cooling off on, on Twitter because I defended one of the things we have with the Oscars, which I still think are given much too much importance, um, but is that in addition to the campaigns for films, there are also campaigns against films. And it's quite a bad thing where people from, <laughs> people from rival films, um, foment negative campaigns against films. So I went to defend a film that I think was really a sweet film and really unobjectionable. And, and, um, oh my gosh, you cannot, uh, make any comment in these politicized situations. Is it, it's su such a dirty business? As it? It's really dirty. Um, There, there were the, the studio, um, and, and various, um, people associated with films do, do, seem to do nasty things. Or maybe it's self-generated just by people who loathe the films. I mean, I sort of have a policy of never commenting negatively publicly about any film or filmmaker. Um, I'll whine to friends and complain and criticize films to, to friends, but not publicly. And I, I'm really shocked. When I see, you know, one filmmaker try to really harm another filmmaker because it's the context where it's so hard to get your film made and get your film distributed and get people to go see it. You know, let people go to the film, encourage people to go to the films, make up their own mind. Don't try to sort of shut down a film so no one watches it. But it looks, it sounds like when you said the lunch and when you meet the colleagues and the other one come, so then it's very nice, but it can also behind that be a kind of a really. Yeah, that was very nice. Um, I met, um, another screenwriter and it turns out he'd gone to the same, um, boarding school I went to, except we had completely opposite experiences. And we became, um, friends subsequently. It's a, a screener named Nick Kazan, Aliyah Kazan's son. Yeah. And then I had like Annette Benning coming up to me and saying things to me and she's lovely. And, uh, those are the positive memories of that. No, but it's a different thing as far as the Oscar campaigns. And I suppose the publicists and the journalists who are taking positions for and against certain films. Yeah. Now, uh, should we go to the, I, I, on my way to meet you here, I started listening to the soundtrack to the third movie. Because uh, I remember I like that film a lot and the soundtrack is really great. It is. I mean, I'm, I'm born 1960 myself. So I remember all these, you know, from the glam rock to punk rock and the disco. And we're also talking in the hotel Rival. Do you say that? Rival? Rival? Rival. This hotel. Yeah, Rival. Yeah, Rival. And there's sort of a music scene going on here that yeah. reminds me a lot of our yeah. film. And you know who owes? Yes, I know very well. <laughs> I, I did a very good <laughs> job. But but there are concerts going on every night yeah, yeah, yeah. downstairs, and it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of dance music, and yeah. uh, people are and really have, revved up. Let me tell you, there are some, you know, on different kind of the scale. I interviewed... Gene Simmons here as well on this okay. hotel in our city we knew with uh, okay. So, <laughs> okay. so yeah, the last days of disco yeah, has a lot of disco. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Music. And another thing it has is a lot of... Um, Jamaican, uh, early 60s Jamaican yeah. ska and rock yeah. steady music. Yeah. Uh, and that led to me in, being interested in making a film down there. But yes, last days of disco. Um, was it your, I'm not asking, was that your experience? You went to the Studio 54. <clears throat> I mean, somewhat. I was not, you know, I was already married. Well, actually, actually my first date with my future wife was at Studio 54. And I'd been with my prior girlfriend, very early in 54. And I had a decadent friend who had a no-show job where a company that was going to go into the oil business hired him and then decided not to go in the oil business. So he had a salary, but no work. So he was there all the time. And um, I was working as a journalist at a publication where I finished work at 2 a.m., and one of the few places I could go to see people and have a drink was Studio 54 because it was still going at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. And so I did have some experiences there, but not... At, but even in the film, we don't know how many times they're actually going. They're talking about it all the time, but we only show them going maybe five times. Yeah. <clears throat> so what, what was your experience of Studio 54? I mean, in our film, it's a fictional club. It's a very popular club. that are, It's analogous to Studio 54, but it's not Studio 54. Um, I adored Studio 54. It really was magical and, and wonderful. And there was the true regime under the, the founders. And then they went to prison and, um, other people took it over. And so I would go to things there in the, in the subsequent regime. And it was a totally different thing. It was just a, a good space with okay parties. But under their moment, it really felt special and very exciting. 33 months, I think. It yeah. was. Yeah. And, and I saw the documentary and I think it was lovely to see. Yeah. It's very interesting to see that. Yeah. So, uh, where did you film those great scenes from the disco? Well, there? we did something similar because they were using theater space, um, for Studio 54. That's why it's called Studio 54. It's an old television studio. We found a big old cinema across the Hudson River in Jersey City. It's connected by underground subway trains. Um, it's the Lowe's Journal Square, the big Lowe's Cinema Palace um, in the center of, of, of Jersey City. And we used that as the interior. And we collaborated with a John Turturro film called um, Illuminati. 
Oh, yeah. uh, we we bought the, they bought the red carpet and we did pay for everything else and we you know um, split screening days there and then we did the exterior in Manhattan in the Soho neighborhood. Yeah. And once again, your actors, favorite actors, of course, and that dry humor in this uh, dialogue that is just fantastic to the disco music. I think that is. Maybe I think that's the one I like most of those three. I don't know I why. Warn, I have to warn people here in, in Sweden that um, uh, um, Barcelona has a good version on iTunes, but a, a, a critic friend told me that the version of Last Days of Disco on iTunes is very bad uh-huh. and should not be watched. There is a Criterion DVD, and I'm going to try to talk to the studios <clears throat> to see if they can get a better version of um of the material yeah. on on iTunes but so they said Barcelona is good on iTunes but not last day's okay. disco. Talking about that what's happening with your trilogy now? I mean is it going to be a package on the Blu-ray yes, or something? We, or I mean I'm here in in Stockholm now because the Cinematheque had a a, a, a retrospective yeah. yesterday showing all three films. How was it? It was really exciting. Yeah. It was really <laughs> fun. And there are people who stayed the whole day to see the three films. Yeah. And we had a discussion with Morten Blumquist yeah, uh, uh, at the end. Uh, it was really fun. And we introduced the actor of the TV series I'm working on, The Cosmopolitans, uh, Freddie Osblom. I can't say his name correctly. I know. Um, yeah, I know the name. Very nice actor. <laughs> and um, so, yes, there is a box set of the trilogy that Criterion has put out. <clears throat> but it is, you know, the American format. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, if it there is a DVD of um, of uh, Last Days Disco floating around, I think in Europe. Okay, I'm going to London next week, so maybe I'll see if I. Get I think it. there's a French. They came out with it. Warner Brothers came out with it in French, and um, so you can um, either watch it just in English or with French subtitles, okay. uh, and it's very cheap. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All your listeners, don't miss this film and see it in a, in a really good version, of course. Now, uh, when you look upon your old films, these three films, uh, do you ever re- revisit them? I revisit them a lot <coughs> because um, I travel with them in festivals and occasionally I, I sit through and, and watch the films again. And often um, we have to do technical things with the films. We have to rewatch them for the color transfers and things like yeah. that. And what I feel about the old films, generally, you know, I was happy with the films as we completed them. We work a long time in editing and all that. And I'm not like Woody Allen and other filmmakers who can't watch their old films. But I do know that every film screening is a performance. And it's a it's a performance between the spectator and and the film. And so I can get nervous about a film and watch it in a sort of impatient, nervous way and really hate it and feel it's very awkward and kind of a mess. Um, and then I can see it in another context, often when there's an audience responding to it and getting the laughs and laughing and that kind of thing, when I really can enjoy them and like them. But um, over time, I see how certain things that are maybe flaws in a film actually add to the quality of the film. So... I'm a little embarrassed with Last Days of Disco that it's sort of meandering and unstructured in certain ways. 
and a bit too long. But I see that now there's this younger generation that really likes the film. And maybe the fact that it's not sort of taught and, and, and charging forward, uh, in, in one direction, the way so many modern films do, where it's, they're just that one thing. Um, the fact that disco talks about all these characters and sidelights, it's a different experience for people. So maybe that's made it more lasting as a film. How would you consider yourself as a director? Uh, are you, she would say, kind of a political director? I mean, Metropolitan is about the bourgeois. Or... Well, it is trying to humanize certain groups that are dehumanized normally. Um, but I wouldn't say political. Um, they're, they're comedies of identity. These are people sort of trying to um, understand how they fit into the world and, and, and what they're going to be. And... Um, You know, there's this term comedy of manners that I don't like because people associate manners with very picky things like how you set a table when manners is really morals in the original sense, mores. And so they're, they're moral comedies. So they're, you know, about the dilemmas people face and the situations people get into. Um, but, but they are comedies and, and they're light. And, and I remember, um, Sidney Pollack talking about films. And he said that directors are sort of divided in is, is it, is your film going to be about guns? Is it going to be about violence or is it going to be about love? Is it romance or is it violence? And, um, I've been on the romance side. And then uh, Rene Claire was asked, like, you know, why is, does he like do comedies? And he said, what's well, a bit like, are you, are you blonde or brunette? And so you either like drama or you like comedy. <laughs> and we do mix these things. We mix drama within the comedy to make it sort of more serious and more real. Um, and in some things we have violence, like in Barcelona, there's violence. And actually, mm-hmm. I think that helped the film gain more acceptance in the United States. There are actually things happen. There's drama and, and, and fear that someone might die or, or be crippled for their whole life. And so, Um, with the television series I hope to do, I hope to have more of those things. I see in television, you really have to have a lot of story. You need a lot of incident. You need a lot of things happening. You need tension and intrigue more than you do in film. Yeah. Uh, if we go from this wonderful last days of disco, we come to the film that I haven't seen that, the damsel in distress. Oh, that's cool that you haven't seen it. No. I'm sorry. Um, I, I came it, here, I came here with it, um, to the Stockholm Festival. At that point, the Stockholm Festival was the only festival I've been to with every film. So I've come four times to the great. Stockholm Festival, and yeah. I really always enjoy it. And it's a great um, audience here. And we did get a technical release through um, the Sony Studios, um, <clears throat> but it's not much seen. And um, it's the least popular of the films I've done. It has a wonderful um, actress in it. Greta um, Gerwig. Greta Gerwig, who's Fantastic. turned out to be an important filmmaker. Yeah. And it has a wonderful leading man, um, Adam Brody. And I liked him so much. I cast him um, in um, the TV series we're trying to do, The Cosmopolitans. Mm. And um, it was really strange because for two movies, I was looking for romantic leads And I really could only find Adam Brody the first time. And the second time I was looking again, I could only find Adam Brody. <laughs> and so uh, I really like him. Yeah. 
And this film, I just saw some clips in, in the trail, of course, and it looks, as usual, it's the uh, Stillman whipped, as they say. Uh, it's very different um, than the first three films. The first three films are quite naturalistic. I mean, they could happen. So a filmmaker I admire, Woody Allen, he allows himself to do things that are really fantastic. They're, they're sort of fantasies. They're scenes that aren't real at all, but they're very funny. So in Annie Hall, you have that wonderful scene with the children um, who are like eight years old, talk about what they're going to be doing later in life. Um, but in in Damsels in Distress, it really is stylized, not very realistic. And I really enjoyed uh, working in that mode. Not all the audience enjoyed it uh, as much. But I hope over time, like Last Days of Disco, Damsels in Distress will become more popular. But it is, I mean, it's a dialogue again. You can feel that this is... Yes, um, but... Uh, That's your trademark, isn't I mean, it? No, but I mean, in this... So a lot of people sometimes comment that our movies are stealth musicals. It, it's like this movie wants to be a musical, but doesn't really have the song and dance. And in the case of Damsels in Distress, it becomes more overtly a musical. And what are musicals? Musicals are not very realistic. It's a bit of a, it's a, it's a rose-colored glasses fantasy. And so we're a musical with very few numbers, but there's some pretty numbers in it. Um, one of my favorite Gershwin songs, Things Are Looking Up, that is in a Fred Astaire movie called A Damsel in Distress. So our movie is called Damsels in Distress, yeah. and the key song in it is um, Things Are Looking Up by Gershwin. So when you look upon that film today, well, that's my favorite film. So oh. it's it's my least <laughs> it's my least loved film, least popular film, least successful film, but it's my favorite film, and it's a favorite film of some other people too. But maybe that's the sort of um, needy child syndrome, like the child that has the reading disability, you have to help. Maybe it's that kind of thing. But I, I really like it. Uh, did you have you seen then Greta in something that you felt that I want her in the part? Or? Yes, um, I mean first, you know, the casting people in the film industry are really really smart people, and they know who's the comer, and they tell you. And so I met these people who are coming. Like there's a strange girl um, who came to read for something that the casting people were very excited about. Lena Dunham, they're very excited about her, and. This before she became famous, Lena Dunham and all that. And um, she really, I mean, it, it really, it was a good experience when she came in because um, it was one of those audition days where everything sounded terrible, like my script sounded terrible. And then she wrote, read for a role she was completely un unsuited for, really, but she was very funny. And so, so my scene... I saw it wasn't bad. The script wasn't bad. And then Greta Gerwig is another performer the casting people were very excited about. And I met with her. You know, they do this horrible thing in the film business where if someone has some reputation, you're not supposed to audition with them. You're supposed to just meet with them and then just dream how they're going to do the part. And I generally say, I can't do that. I need to go work on the scene with people and know what they're going to do and what we can do with it. And so she agreed to do that. And um, actually, she's one of the few people I've cast in a film who hadn't done in the audition what had to be done in the film. And so it was actually quite scary doing the... Um, the table read, the read through of the whole script before you start shooting and the first couple of days shooting because I don't think either of us knew exactly what the character was going to be. And it was that um, 
thing of searching for the character um, while you're shooting, which is is frightening. But I think maybe people who do that um, end up in a more interesting place than the people who are quick, kind of quick studies and they can do a version of it that's good, but maybe doesn't get everything that is in there out, out of it. Yeah. Uh, and then, was it one or two <clears throat> years ago? You had great success, reviews and great success, wasn't it? With Love and it, it was fantastic. And um, I mean, it's terrible when you're a filmmaker in any field, when you're not allowed to do what you think you should be doing. So I had many years when I didn't get to make films. And, you know, a How lot come? Of, uh, uh, well, it's a long story, okay. a lot of discouragement. <laughs> and in this case, um, I've been working on this project in secret for a long time and I started showing the script around when I thought it was ready. I actually got a contract to do the novel based on the script before I knew that we'd actually ever make the movie. And then it started coming together. We had a pretty decent, pretty funny script, but it was kind of one thing. It was just a lot of these two bitchy ladies saying funny things and gossiping about everyone else. And um, it's the first time I've had truly true comedians in the cast. So I've had really good actors acting comedy really well, but it's a different thing when people are comedians because they're really creating the roles. So I, there, all this stuff happened during the shoot, making it, I think, much funnier. And uh, and the film turned out really luckily. Yeah. Have you read a lot of Jane Austen? Yeah, you? absolutely. I'm totally, I'm totally immersed in Jane Austen. I re read it, reread it. So I adore um, Jane Austen and Fitzgerald and um, Tolstoy and J.D. Salinger and Evelyn Waugh. And um, there's some other authors I like, like single books, like uh, Middle March by George Eliot. Um, I don't like this thing where people feel they have to identify with the race and gender and nationality of the authors they like. I find it very backwards, that idea. I mean, I love, I feel closest to Jane Austen, who is a, a lady from two centuries before in another country. Um, and, uh, my, one of my favorite authors, you know, living, my favorite living author who is no longer is living, but was Isaac Besheva Singer, the oh. Jewish Yiddish author from Poland. We shared almost no background yet. I felt incredibly close to what he thought and wrote. And I actually got a chance to meet him several times. Oh, yeah, great. So this film then, uh, a costume drama with the, with Stillman humor in it was, uh, it was, Really funny, of course, and uh, beautiful as well. I'm thinking of this year's The Favorite by Yorgos Lanthimos, of course, who is, uh, for me, a great film, a costume drama with a lot of more kind of bizarre humor. But you are, you are still, is it a stiff upper lip kind of thing that you... Well, the thing is, um, this was really a goldmine for um, film adaptation. There are a lot of problems adapting a beloved work for the screen because you have a public that loves it. In this case, Jane Austen had written something that she didn't publish. And very often when something's not published, it's because it's really inferior. In this case, it wasn't inferior at all. It just wasn't finished. Um, so there was really incredibly interesting and funny material in what she wrote, but it was in completely inaccessible form. It was really hard to read because she started writing in the 18th century in the form of the 18th century, which was the epistolary novel, 
which is letters back and forth to the characters. And it, she wasn't suited to it. And she was discovering she wasn't suited to it. And so she turned her first epistolary novels into dramatized modern novels. Uh, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility started out epistolary. This piece, for various reasons, she didn't um, finish. Um, so I could work with something very good and very funny, but that had never been dramatized. So my work was to make it into scenes that could be played and photographed. Um, and that did take a time, but I decided not to tell anyone about this project and just work on it when I didn't have any other work to do. Like when I was not being paid for some job, writing some script, I would work on this. And so it meant that I wouldn't work on it for two years, then I'd come back to it. And if you do that, you can see what's bad about it. You see all this, and you have no problem in taking out what's bad. So one of the big problems when you're writing, straight ahead writing, is you write something kind of mediocre, and then the next day, you can't accept that it's mediocre. And you keep building on a bad foundation, and you have this whole structure of things that are mediocre. And what's really good if you can just stop on a script, put it aside, and come look at it, you know, months or years later, and then you just take out the bad stuff and you just want to get rid of it. There's no problem getting rid of it. So how many years did you work on the script? Then? Well, I didn't, I wasn't working on it for the years. I was working on it for the weeks within the years. Okay. So, but it was, it was a 10 year period. Yeah. Was it say Metropolitan was also? Metropolitan was like that. And the thing is, I had this wonderful day job that was just the best day job I realize now. I was a agent for wonderful illustrators and cartoonists. And in most sales jobs, you get a lot of rejection. It's very depressing. In this job, we didn't get rejection because we just inform people of the work of these artists, just have these very nice thing, like showing a, like a museum show. This is this artist. This is their work. Not expecting then that anyone would say yes. And then we, four months later, we'd get a call, say, could you send up this portfolio? We have a job and we want to consider him. So we'd only hear the good stuff. And, um, I found that when I was selling their, when I was actually trying to get them work and sending out mailers and all that, I couldn't write my script. But when they were all working on their projects, I could write at night and early morning, um, this Metropolitan script. And so it was over four years. And actually when I finished, I couldn't quite believe that. I said, what? I've come to the end of this. I just said, this is ended. <laughs> you know, it's not possible that I've finished the script. <laughs> But was it when, when did the dream came to you that you wanted to be a director and screenwriter? How, how? That came to me when I was uh, by default, I was in university um, at 16 and in, in my Harvard interview, um, I was telling the fellow essentially that I wanted to do my father's career. I was just reciting my father's ambitions. In the middle of telling him this, I was thinking at the same time, that's not what I want to do. I want to write novels like Fitzgerald. <clears throat> and then in college, I tried to write fiction. And I found it really incongenual as work. I don't like being alone and that whole lonely life of a novelist. And so I said, I can't do that. I don't have this, the character, um, the fortitude. Um, so, but maybe I could work in, in film or TV or comedy or performance. And, and then people started making indie films. And I said, well, maybe I can make an indie film. And that is where you are still because you have more control there. Or I mean, I, I found that I could write novels. Uh, so I published two novels 
and I would like to I published two novels based on stories I developed for the films. Okay. And I'd like to do novels from scratch also. Yeah. But, you know, you get so much more reaction from films. People, you ask people to see a film, it's only 90 minutes of their time and it's passive and it's fun and they can be with other people while they watch it. They can go out to the cinema or be home, have a drink. It's fun. And, you know, we can put music in and dancing and lovely actors. Um, it's such, so much harder to ask people to, to read a book and read a novel. Um, but I, I, I love novels and, um. Is it more fulfilling to write or think of? No, I wouldn't say that, but, um, it's also a great thing. So I think they're both, you know, great things to do. Yeah. Finally, uh, can you say something about the Cosmopolitan? Is it a TV series that you're working on? Yes, I, I did one and it was very much in the sort of metropolitan Barcelona, you know, metropolitan characters abroad in Paris or something like that. Um, and it was just an afternoon and an evening. Uh, they talk in an afternoon. They go to a party. There's some heartbreaking situations. Um, we have this wonderful song, What Becomes the Broken Hearted is the theme. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it came to writing this series, um, uh, I was realizing in film, in, in TV series, you really need more incidents and violence and things happening and intrigue. So, They're the same characters, but now they're doing intriguing and dangerous and fascinating things. Okay, finally then, would you say that you're still learning a lot when you... Absolutely, yeah. I th- I think, I mean, looking at other people's careers, I think it's terrible when people seem to think they know what they're doing. It's always necessary not to know what you're doing and not having too many rules about what you're doing. Do you have any opinions about this year's Oscar We're coming up now? And you have any favorites or any film that you just loathe or you think that there are? Well, I've been defending um, this very corny film. Um, so it's, it's, it's what they call sort of a feel-good film. And it's like very well-intentioned and very, you know, n- nice thoughts and beliefs. And, and, and I think it's a problem when people become snobbish about a genre. And people shouldn't be a snobbish about a genre. So I think, I think, um, I think Green Book is very clever and, 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 and virtuous and quite, quite wonderful film. Yeah, there are things about it that I find too much, you know, you know, melodramatic or corny or things like that. But that's what the genre is. And these people are doing very sensitive, very, I think very lovely, uh, things with it. Yeah. And, TV series, but when will you see a new film from you, a feature film from Whitstone? I have no idea. I mean, I never know. And I've also discovered that it's very bad to talk about your projects because people do steal them. But okay, but you, you, you have plans for it though, or? Yeah, I absolutely intended to. I mean, I thought I would have had something, uh, before now, but there are complications. Okay. So I should uh, not say good luck. I should break a leg or something. Yes, okay. Thank you for your time. But with our icy, (laughs) with our icy sidewalks, that might. Oh yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Nice to see you.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.